Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Adam Withy. Adam is the director of a company called Juzo, which develops medical aids. Adam, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Hey, thanks, Scott. Very, very happy to be here. Pleasure having you as well, Adam. Now, this podcast, of course, is all about leadership, uh, first and foremost, and effective leadership at that. And that's coming under the microscope so much at the moment uh, with, of course, Mm. the fallout of the COVID-19 outbreak, no less. Um, Tell me, in your industry, how has it been for you trying to navigate through the past uh, couple of weeks? Well, we've seen as a thought leader in our industry, we're not the biggest, but we always come up with ideas a lot quicker than everyone else. So about a week ago, we were sitting there thinking, well, patients can't see doctors anymore. So we need to come up with a way that will enable the transaction that was happening between the patient and the doctor to happen. And then for the measurement of our products to happen, and then for the patient to get the product. And actually, we, we came up with something in a day and we actually um, made a campaign out of it within three days. So we launched a program called Juzo Assist about a week ago, um, which was one week ahead of the government directive of how companies should be helping in this current situation. So we, we, we felt very humble that we kind of guessed correctly. And luckily, we seem to be ahead in the industry again, which is really, really nice. You know, I have a great sales manager, and we pulled a couple of all-nighters and a couple of weekends. And yeah, so far, so good. Yeah, that's fantastic news. So um, even in the, um, as I say, the fallout of uh, this whole outbreak business, um, there's been some room for innovation there and some room for real proactivity in your case. <laughs> it's amazing what you can do when you have to. I've never written a website before, uh, but we don't have the ability to go to the market and say, hey, can someone write us a website in 48 hours? I bought some software and made a website. I had no idea how to use Vimeo. I know now how to upload a website, you know, a website with Vimeo on there. And when you have to do it, you have to do it. And but for my team, I think it's been quite good that they can see that the management actually roll their sleeves up and get stuck in. Yes, definitely. And um, it also um, sort of raises into a question this whole idea of um, leaders essentially not being the finished article because like, you're very mm-hmm. much learning on the job. And that's a, good, a, that's a perfect example of that that you've just given there, isn't it? I've got to tell you, so we, we launched it last Friday and we changed it every day until this Friday. And we will probably change it every day this week as well because every day this situation with COVID-19 is changing. Every day a different group of patients are, are meeting with our, our target customers who can be doctors or physios. And until we actually know exactly what we're dealing with, we're going to have to finesse it every day, which means learning something new every day and listening to my team because without the team being on the ground and telling us the problems that they are facing, we're never going to get it right. Absolutely. And it's very much a reminder, this anecdote of the importance of having a good team around you as a leader, isn't Mm -hmm. it? It's not just a one man or one woman show. The team um, is very integral. It's a team effort at the end of the day. Well, it, it is. It's just surprising to me how many um, team leaders don't ever say, I only got here because of my team. But actually, within Juzo, that's always been the way. You know, I'm lucky enough to be the director of Juzo, but we don't have a company without a team. And we don't have a company without customer services. And we have different pay grades through the entire company. But, you know, just because a rep is out and then rep might have a company car, 
they do all the hard work in their mind, but actually it's the person in customer services who has to input the order. You know, and, and I think it's very important to try and um, reward and figure out and, and actually say to people, everyone is important in the organization. Absolutely. And instilling that sort of dynamic and that sort of culture as a leader as well, where everybody has a role to play, everybody is important. That's mm-hmm. a, a huge responsibility, isn't it? it? It is. We're very lucky, though. We're a family owned company and have been for four generations since 1912. And within Juzo UK Limited, we're also a family company. My wife works here, my sister-in-law works here. Um, and we actually try to run it as a family. And as you can imagine, you have leaders in a family. You also have squabbles in a family. But we don't mind having those squabbles. And we really, really believe that if you have a problem, bring it to the table. Fortunately, it's not the uh, dining room table. <laughs> Absolutely right. Now, um Obviously, since um, you've been sort of quite proactive in uh, navigating mm-hmm. the, uh, the outbreak um, as um, the news has come um, in this sense, um, what advice would you give to somebody then who was about to start their first leadership role, say, tomorrow, especially having to navigate a storm such as this? Oh, good Lord. Well, the first thing is read lots of books. Um, surround yourself with people who are better than you and know more than you. Find a mentor that you know you can trust who is going to stretch you and not laugh at you too much if you make mistakes because you will make mistakes and see those mistakes as part of the road to success. Um, And the last thing is just try to build a team. You won't know what you need until you get there. The issue right now is we don't know what the road ahead is and you can't really, you can't really train for it, but you need to be adaptable at the moment. And if you can't adapt, make sure that someone in your team is adaptable or many people in your team are adaptable and involve them as much as you can. Absolutely. And you mentioned mentors there as well, Adam. Um, I do want to touch on that for uh, just a moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there an example of a mentor in your life who's maybe been an inspiration to you and maybe rubbed off on your <laughs> leadership style? Oh gosh, if he's listening, well, there is actually, there's a couple, my, my first ever, um, sales manager, Stan Woolley, he, he was a mentor to me because he showed me you could actually be a sales guy and still be nice. And then my first ever, um, director level mentor, who's a gentleman called Peter Ellingworth, who still works in the industry. And he actually showed me that sometimes you have to make tough decisions and, um, it, it doesn't feel nice doing them, but as long as you know you're doing them for the right reason, it's the best thing to get them out of the way and be honest with people. And although it might be difficult to to give bad news at the time, giving it and explaining it is the right thing to do rather than trying to gloss over it and hide it. Absolutely. And it's good that we mentioned mentors um, in this light um, as well, Adam, because when we Mm. think of inspiring leaders instantly for a lot of people it comes to mind people like celebrities people like um in the uh, political uh, sphere for example yeah and often good examples of leadership especially in a business context does tend to very much Mm. go unseen um with that in mind do you think Mm. that good leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in the uk (laughs) well i i think it probably was i think there is a tendency now towards celebrities and this culture of pop celebrities. I mean, 
what are they doing at the moment? You know, all the eyebrow consultants out there are saying, oh my God, I've got COVID-19 and they're still trying to be celebrities mm. because they've got this illness. Uh, I think maybe before the turn of the century, and I sound like an old an old person now, and I probably am because I'm in my, in my 50s, there was more talk about the Margaret Thatchers of this world and the uh, business leaders at the time and the sporting heroes. But now... The celebrities, they, they seem to be famous for doing not a lot, really. Absolutely. And um, if, say, for example, um, the likes of Margaret Thatcher were to uh, return and um, address um, the country, the staff <laughs> at your company, even, what sorts of things do you think that they would say now? <laughs> well, they, they would probably say, um, shut up and get on with it, which, which isn't our culture, by the way. It would be so against our culture. But the, the way that... Maggie was portrayed was getting things done, you know, we'll, we'll bag it and bin it and that way we'll win it. Short, sharp, easily memorable things and very, very tough. You know, you think about the miners' strike and I don't want to say who was right or who was wrong, but mm. she was very tough in, in a situation where she needed to be tough. And uh, I know she's on one side a pariah and on the side like a heroine, but um, she was a very well-respected leader because she got things done. Absolutely. And um, good leaders um, will always be divisive in some way as well, won't they? Because as a leader, essentially, whatever decision you make, ultimately, you are there to be shot at. Yeah, I think they will in business. It's a little bit easier in sports. You know, if you have the the Jeff Hurst of the world or the um, Harry Kane's of the world or the Steven Gerrard's, you know, they're seen as very cohesive leaders with a clear strategy bringing the team together. It's a lot easier to do that in a, in a sport. Um, but in a business, uh, I think it's a little bit more difficult. You can try and be cohesive. You can set the strategy. You can give people the tools to get there, but you can't be with them on the pitch. And you can't be saying, come on, lads, let's do this. Or come on, girls, let's do this. You always have to let them go and then look at the metrics. God forbid, you know, see what the numbers are telling you. And, um, have regular feedback meetings with them, which isn't quite as easy, but it's very, very important to do that. Absolutely. It adds a new sort of angle to people management, doesn't it? But it also shows yeah. that you've yeah. got to be looking for people who do have self-motivation and a hunger as qualities mm. of their own, doesn't it? Those are qualities that you can't necessarily teach. Those are the sides of things that really one has to be sort of, not necessarily born with, but they've got to have it from the get-go, haven't they? They, they have to have it from the get-go. and. It, it manifests in different ways at different times. You know, some people can be very motivated when things are going well and then they struggle a little bit and they, those type of people sometimes find it difficult to ask for help because it's like, oh my gosh, you know, things have got a little bit harder now and I've been the successful one and the motiva- motivated one. And I think it's important as a leader to say to people, listen, I have days like that every time. Every day I'm faced with something that I don't know the answer to it's very important. I can even speak to people who may be perceived uh, at a lower role than me and say, look, you know what? I struggle. Um, so in, in that type of situation, even the best performing person who is losing motivation should be able to go to the top. And equally, you know, we're in this um, COVID-19 situation right now. And there's people who in my team, I thought, you know, they're not going to step up. And suddenly they're like, bang on the money. They're outperforming everybody else. They're showing what their, their true metal is because they realize it's a time of adversity and they've really, really stepped up, really stepped up. 
Absolutely. And um, it can often um, sort of go unnoticed that when you are facing times of adversity and people are stretched, you do tend to get the best out of them and see what they're really made of in those times, especially. Um, I'm conscious of running out of time, Adam, but before we do wrap no things problem, up, um, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next year is going to hold for yourself, for Juzo, your team, and what you really <laughs> hope to collectively achieve in that time as well, especially beyond COVID-19? Yeah, wow. I was going to say, when we booked this in, I probably had a different answer for that. Um, well, the first thing is, I hope everyone comes through it safely. And uh, we don't have any real losses in terms of people, and not just my business. As few businesses as possible have have real losses. I think I, I would like to return to normality, whenever that is, and everybody still has a job. All of the patients that we're looking after are still alive. And then, you know, if we if we can come out flat, in the short term, I would be really happy with that. All of our customers have been redeployed in the NHS and they were doing a fantastic job anyway. I mean, people clap the other night, but we should probably clap them every night. Um, so they've all been redeployed. We don't know when they're coming back. So if we can just keep everybody in their jobs, make sure the patients who are out there are getting the products that they need and just really set a foundation for growth again in 2021, I think that would be a good result right now, which is Probably not what I would have said two and a half weeks ago. Absolutely. Um, it is changing times and um, goals and um, aspirations yeah. are changing by the day, of course. But let's hope we do start seeing that light at the end of the tunnel sooner rather than later. And there is that upward trajectory and things do I'm get sure back to a degree of normality. Absolutely, Adam. Yeah. Um, I have to say, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today. And really Mine too. Thank as you. Well. And I think it would be fantastic as well to have you back on in a few months' time just to look at this retrospectively and see how things have played out. So again, thanks cool. so much. For that would be amazing. Me. It would be fantastic. You're very, very welcome. It's been fantastic, Adam. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Um, we now Thank hand you, over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname? Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Uh, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, 
see your name being put up on the Lord's honour board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively, relatively old is probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning, from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of 
living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it's it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the ashes but also the day after you know that open top bus parade around london and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trep Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and the you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different, shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And 
the job of the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was what was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky 
having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help. Uh, Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families 
prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, was it 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re wearing red. So what, what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> like, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, 
broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.